0: Hi, I'm Don Mackie, and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org.
1: Welcome to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. I'm Shelley Pash, business specialist and ecosystem builder for Kansas Main Street, working through the Economic Vitality Point, and I will be your host today. I am joined by Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, hosted by Network Kansas. Don has worked in the field of community economic development throughout North America for more than 40 years with a deepening focus on entrepreneur-led economic development. So today, we're going to talk about workforce and e-communities. Hello, Dawn.
0: Hi, how are you? Good to be with you today.
1: I'm good. Yes, it's actually cooled down a little bit. Not much. It's still a little muggy, but, you know, (laughs) we're trying so hard.
0: Yeah, it's summer in the heartland, so you got to expect those temperatures and a little bit of humidity, right? Yeah, it's a little sticky. So, I appreciate you sending me your paperwork
1: over your documents. And it's always fascinating to go through some of these. So, we'll go through. So, as we had mentioned before, we talked about workforce and e communities So, according to the media and employers in America and everywhere else in the world, apparently, America is experiencing a workforce crisis, Dawn. So... Is there a workforce crisis in America? And if so, what do you think is driving this crisis?
0: Well, I think absolutely. I think what's interesting to me is it's not new. It's been building for a long time in the United States, and there are international implications for this. But particularly for rural America, this crisis has been building over the last at least 30 years. And I I think it's important to kind of unbundle or reverse engineer why we're at this point in time where nearly every employer I talk to, communities I talk with, they're all saying I'm having a hard time finding the people I need. And so I do think it's the pain is starting to become a little bit intense. So, I mean, Shelley, some of the major driving forces is, first of all, we have a Dramatically lower birth rate in the United States. People are waiting longer to engage in relationships. They're waiting longer to have kids, or in many cases, depending on which data you look at, now a majority of young people are not planning to have kids. And so, and even with immigrant populations that typically have higher birth rates, those are really conforming to kind of the national average of having less kids. And so that means we've got fewer young people coming into the workforce than we've had in the past. I think another factor which has been building for a long time, and I fit this description, I'm a baby boomer. I'm kind of mid-baby boomer. I'm not the youngest, but My brothers and sisters are part of that older cohort. It's a huge cohort. It's the second largest generation after millennials in the United States. And the fact is, boomers entered the workforce. They were predominant in the workforce for decades. And now we are retiring. You know, I now work three days a week. Um, And I remember from before, (laughs) you've
1: got like 10,000 baby boomers retiring. Every day. Every day. Every day. And believe me, I mean... I'd love to. That'd be great. I'm not a boomer, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm a Gen Xer.
0: We're going to represent (laughs) there. Well, and if we look at things like police departments, fire departments, schools, healthcare, boomers really were the wave of workers as those industries were really expanding rapidly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now, as boomers are retiring, we're having a hard time filling those positions. So, that's part of it. Probably for our part of the country, Shelley, one of the biggest factors is restrictions on immigration. And our state demographer here in Nebraska, where I live, has made the case that in the last three census periods, Nebraska's population would have been negative had it not been for first generation immigrants. And so, you know, immigrants not only from Mexico and Central America, but also immigrants who are part of the refugee cycle, if we think about the immigrants who came to the United States after the Vietnam War, from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, they really provided a safety net. They provided labor in our economy that we weren't able to meet through natural population change. And so, you know, there's other factors, but when you kind of put those three underlying trends together, you're simply going to have fewer people and our economy, despite all of its challenges, continues to create more jobs than we have people to fill them.
1: Well, and yeah, and that's when we talk about that outsourcing and the gig work and stuff like that. So so I know you, you had mentioned the term human talent crisis, right? So I understand human. So why don't, why don't you explain what you mean by human talent And how does this relate to the workforce
0: crisis? Well, I think part of it is a change in attitude. And I was just discussing this with my wife, Jenny, this morning. She's got a really good friend who's in human relations, works for a large grocery chain in the Pacific Northwest, and they have serious workforce shortages and challenges. I think it's it's a mindset on the part of employers. So workforce, labor, those are acceptable terms. But they really refer to a world in the 19th century where there was more low-skilled work, you know, and we had lots of people and labor. Exactly, Mm, laborious, yeah, (laughs) sure. And even in you know industries like manufacturing that have or construction that have a history of that kind of physical labor. Those industries have automated. And so if you're in construction, chances are you're operating a million dollar or a $200,000 machine. If you're in manufacturing, you're probably working on an automated manufacturing floor. And so you have to have computer skills. And so our economy has really shifted from low skill to higher skill. And that's where human talent comes in is you, you can't necessarily just train somebody in a six month incubation period to be totally competent in that job. It acquires more experience. It acquires the ability to work in teams. It acquires, you know, the ability to innovate. That's human talent. That's the knowledge economy. So I think for employers, if they're still seeing workers as just one more input that's interchangeable, that if somebody leaves, I can go out into the marketplace. And sure. They're more of a
1: cost than anything. Exactly. Right.
0: Where with human talent, we're really talking about an investment in people who become highly skilled, highly motivated, satisfied in their jobs, So they're willing to stay. Right. And Loyal. that gives you a right. competitive advantage. Right.
1: Well, so, it's interesting because years and years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I started touting this, you know, individuals are often hired for their skill set, and they're fired due to their character quality, right? They're not dependable or flexible or loyal, enthusiastic, punctual. These are all character qualities. You can can learn the skill. I don't know necessarily that you can learn the character quality, right? And i mean and i think it was the center for creative leadership that had shown like professional development occurs at 70% on the job you've got 20% from other people and 10% from trainings workshops things like that so yeah i'm always like well if you can teach and you know learn that skill set and maybe have a little bit behind you i think that that helps and and maybe Companies not over-indexing those requirements of software programs, graphic design, though it is much more competitive now, right, than like you were saying, like back when workforce was more labor intensive. I mean, and that's
0: still out there, right? Well, and I still think it's a, a relevant factor in almost any workplace, you know, the Harvard Business School is known for their business studies. And one of the studies that they came out with, we've talked about it before, is the good job strategy. And I really recommend that to any employer. You should read that book and we'll make that available.
1: As I'm writing that down, good job.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a powerful book. and, And in the book, the author does a case study of a convenience store chain, I believe, based down at Tulsa. Now you would think, Convenience stores are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And you would assume you go, well, this really doesn't require high skills to run one. But in a typical convenience store, Shelley, there are three types of workers. There's the manager who runs the shop, who also probably does double duties, stocking, buying, all those kinds of things. You've got your clerk who does the transaction, and then you've got some kind of maintenance person. And in this book, she looks at this particular chain that has empowered their workers. Now, they don't necessarily make more money than other convenience store workers. They don't have necessarily better benefits, but they're so much more satisfied because management has said, if you are a shop manager, we're going to really give you a higher level of freedom as to how you organize your store within parameters, how you staff your store, Because you know your customers better than anybody else. And we're going to allow you to really exercise your brain and have some control. And even with the maintenance worker, you know, most retail businesses say, okay, you clean the restrooms every hour. Well, if you talk to maintenance workers, they say, you know, in a convenience store, we have peak hours in the morning and in the late afternoon. And during the middle of the day, I check on the restrooms, but I don't need to clean them because we have little activity, but we really need to be prepared for those rush hours. Well, giving that maintenance worker that flexibility to say, you can now spend your time on other things that keeps this a very attractive functioning and operating shop is huge. Now, what she found, I'll go to the bottom line, is their satisfaction was really high. Their turnover rates were dramatically lower than other convenience stores, and lo and behold, the profit margins were higher were for higher. this change. Yeah. <laughs> and so that speaks to the fact that these are not highly skilled workers. But when you treat people in a human talent kind sure. of mindset respect, versus simply being a worker, integrity. Yeah. they perform better. They perform better for the same wage rate. Great. Right. I agree. I love that. I love that. Good job strategy. <laughs> yeah. Good job strategy. Rita. There
1: you go. So getting back to your paper too, so why is America's workforce crisis potentially an important priority for community-focused entrepreneurial ecosystem building?
0: Well, I think it's, it's, it's either an asset or a constraint. And of course, with entrepreneurship, you've got that mirror or the different sides of the same coin. And part of it is if you have growing ventures, you need to be able to find the human talent that allows that venture to grow. And let's use an example, and you're familiar with this, of a local cafe. Yeah, I mean, people go because maybe there aren't any other cafes. But if that cafe really invests in its people, a better cook staff, servers who have that talent for knowing when you need something and leaving you alone the rest of the time, that can really lead to a much higher and better experience, better food, better service, which could allow that cafe to become a destination business, a place that now has a reputation of attracting consumers from a multi-county area. And of course, if those folks come to your community, Shelley, chances are they're also going to spend time and money in other businesses, other services, which contributes to the vitality of your community. And we've all been there. We've all been there where that server is just exceptional. And it's a great experience and it just makes a huge difference. So I think this becomes really critical is how can communities help their businesses and their other ventures, nonprofits, local governments become better employers? And this goes back to the good job strategy. The key to attracting and retaining human talent is you've got to become a really good boss. You've got to understand the art and the science of being a really good boss. And if you do that, trust me, compared to other businesses, other employers, you're going to attract better talent, you're going to keep it longer, and you're going to be more Mm high-performing.
1: And I think I brought this up in one of our past podcasts that there is a gentleman that I worked for when I lived in San Francisco and it was a boutique hotel in the financial district. And man, that place ran like clockwork because of him and he could not be there. But I remember walking with him and, you know, meeting people from the bell staff to the maintenance people and the housekeeping and sales, just every department that we were walking through. And he knew something about each one of those people because he made it such a priority to make sure that they work for him right, to make that a more profitable hotel and where people want to stay. And there was very little turnover, very little turnover. And it was such a fascinating place because, of course, you're in San Francisco and you're at a hotel and you're seeing all these different people come in and you treat the guests with the utmost respect. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool. That was the Galleria Park Hotel way back in the day, way back in the day.
0: Recommended or at least yes. at one point recommended.
1: Yeah, at one point. So I don't think he's there any longer. But, you know, I've had friends that ended up going in and they were the general manager later. And it's because they kept them there for, you know, such a long period of time and watched them work their way from, you know, a bellman up to managing the entire hotel. It was very impressive.
0: Well, and I think part of it is from a community development strategy is investing in leadership development that creates better bosses. And, and let's go to ORD again. I know we go there a lot, but David Iacuinta let's has- Let's go to
1: ORD. Let's get in the car and go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> David has a couple of stories that really speaks to ORD's investment in their Cinnovation Valley Leadership Academy. And that academy is world-class. They did a national search. Dr. D's out of Minnesota, developed the curriculum. And so, for example, a lot of their businesses, not only do the owners go through the academy, their spouses go through the academy, their employees and their employees' spouses go through the academy. And so if you look at the story that Gina and Tana Hackle, they have Hackle Construction, they will talk about how that, Training, how those experiences have dramatically improved their communication skills and their ability to communicate more effectively with their employees. And as a result, their employees are more satisfied. Again, same drumbeat, lower turnover, higher satisfaction higher productivity. We can also look at, you know, Nancy Globke, who is the CEO of the Valley County Healthcare System, one of the most successful rural healthcare systems in Nebraska, I would argue in the heartland. And Nancy will make the point, if you look at her story, she talks about how her goal is that if she was gone for a month or forever Her staff knows their jobs. They are empowered. The hospital, the clinics, all of the services will run. And what that means is she has built a workplace where employees are empowered, they're more satisfied. And again, does she have problems filling all of her vacancies? Of course. But compared to other healthcare systems, she's doing much, much better.
1: Right, right. And that's awesome. So now we just need to get those Managers and leadership roles of those people that need to be, you know, not misrepresenting themselves, right? And saying, oh, I'm such a team player, you know, or to get over themselves and get their families involved and go through these classes. Because, of course, if you're like, if I could just clone this, you know, and it is wonderful when you hear that that's happening places because then others do hopefully look at that as a mentoring. Example and go. Oh gosh. Well, you know what? Maybe we need to do that. So that's really awesome. And one of my questions that came up too on how can entrepreneurs address the human talent need and help their communities? You know, solve those workforce challenges as we talked about some of them. Just with those leadership opportunities. So I know some of the things that I had looked up when talking with Leavenworth, Kansas, and Wendy Scheit, who has been there a long time, and she's just awesome and. I had sent her some things with the economic vitality point, right? And going, okay, well, you know, here are some things to be offered. Make sure that the business owners are at the table, right? To have those discussions and maybe offer solutions. You know, maybe they do shorter work weeks or they offer life or health insurance or mental health services or nursing stations or something that's going to benefit them to be happier, at work, offer higher wages. That's one of the first things. I'm like, if they're not offering a competitive, you know, then this is maybe the reason why we had this great resignation in 2021. And, you know, I started reading before about there were some communities, some states that were offering moving expenses or, you know, a one-year membership to a co-working space. Just things like that that just you know, entice people to come in, not just into your community, into your businesses, but into your state alone.
0: Well, and I think part of it is, and, and you really touched on this, Shelly, is solving this problem in part rests with the owner, the operator, the employer. And part of that is, you know, embracing the principles and the good job strategy. But I think it's also, to your point, becoming a better employee. We had a conversation with a group of business owners up in Norton, Kansas a year ago. And Norton! Norton, yeah, <laughs> you know, Norton, uh, great community. Mr. Sproul! He, yeah. Yes. And the issue came up is, oh gosh, we've got a real problem because we can't find workers. And the owner of the Sonic drive-in, you know, it's that classic drive-in, it's a, it's a chain. He said, yeah, it's a challenge, but he goes, I had to change. I had to provide predictable schedules. I had to improve my wages. I had to provide benefits. And lo and behold, I'm able to find workers. I'm able to keep workers and I'm able to sustain my hours. And he goes, but I had to make some changes from when there were more workers than we needed to an environment where there aren't as many. And I think that really speaks to the fact that in a tight labor market like we're in right now, You can't get by with what you got by 20 years ago. And and so if you're going to be competitive, not only becoming a better boss, but creating a better value case for your employees is fundamental because workers do have choices and they will say, you know, you don't give me predictable schedules and I've got a kid that I've got to pick up at four o'clock and if I can't get out on time, I can't get my kid. Those kinds of accommodations become really important. And if you can make them, you're now going to have an employee who goes, I'm loyal because you help me meet my other life expectations and needs. And that makes a difference in their life. And consequently, they become a better employee for you.
1: Yeah, what a great story that is about Norton, Kansas. And that's fantastic to hear. People can change, right? And one of the things I tend to think is, you know, if you're not making those changes, then one, you're going to be left behind, right? And two, isn't it costing you even more to continually train and workshop these people that they need to figure out how to do this? And if you would actually just do it from the, you know, start from the bottom up and the top down, and then you all meet in the middle. And, you know, that's got to be so expensive on that aspect,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And our good friend, Peter Kenyon, who hails from Western Australia, Peter used to come to this part of the country. He's one of the leading Pacific Rim rural retailing experts. And when Peter would come and do workshops here in the heartland of America, he was brutal. He goes, by and large, rural retailers and service businesses have become very complacent and very lazy. And they got to up their game. If they want to compete in this new environment, they've got to do a whole bunch of things. Now, again, he was brutal, but he could speak from experience saying this is what it takes to be successful in these kinds of businesses today. And I think Peter's advice extends to all employers in this environment today. You just got to up your game. You've got to take time to learn how to be a better boss, how to provide better work environments, those kinds of things. If you do, you're going to have a competitive advantage over those who don't. And maybe you'll thrive versus failing. Sure. Yes. And that's
1: what we all want, right? So through your paper, you had also mentioned human talent pipeline. So Don, tell us a little bit more about this strategy for meeting our workforce challenges?
0: Yeah, I think part of it is we did some work with Southeast Community College, which kind of serves Lincoln and Southeast Nebraska. And of course, they're in the human talent business. I mean, community colleges generate people who can go into a whole bunch of of industries from teaching to healthcare to manufacturing, you name it, they are the pipeline. And we did some analysis at a county by county level, but also by an industry by industry level to begin to understand what's the gap between the likely needed human talent and available human talent. And The pipeline idea comes in that let's say you're a manufacturer in a rural community and you employ 100 people. It begins with doing some planning. And so if half of your workforce is over 55, you know you have a baby boomer cliff effect and that at some point these folks are going to start retiring. And do you have new workers? And so I always use the example of Consolidated Telephone up in the Sandhills. I grew up as a kid in Mullen. That's where Consolidated's based. It's a rural telephone company. Amazing. Competitive company. And they were having a hard time recruiting workers. They could attract people, but oftentimes their families did not want to live in that very sparsely populated environment. I mean, it's an acquired taste, I think, fair to say. And so in this particular case, Consolidated began to say, we need to recruit people who want to live here. And they actually started in doing this kind of detailed planning. You know, how many folks are we going to need to maintain our plant? How many folks are we going to need in the office? Who are folks that are likely to leave? When are we going to have folks who go on maternity leave and need family leave? And consequently, they began to identify and recruit, beginning in middle school, young people who wanted to live in that environment and who were interested in moving into the telephony industry. And then they supported internships. They supported scholarships for schooling. And they built a pipeline where they knew they had a high probability of workers who would fit their environment. And so what Southeast Community College began to do is working with their employers saying, let's assess what your current needs are. Let's understand what your likely turnover is going to be, even if you are a good employer because of retirements and other factors. And now let's begin to think about where are the pools of people that you could begin to curate. And in many cases, you got to start talking to young people by the time they're in the seventh and eighth grade and then create opportunities for them until you're ready to hire them. And that might mean sending them to a community college, paying the tuition to say, we'll help you get the education you need to be a welder and we're going to give you a bonus to then come work for us. You'll get summer work, you'll get supplemental work and they're building a relationship where that person goes, yeah, I I want to work for this particular company. That's the pipeline effect. And I think anybody who has substantial workforce needs, a school, a hospital, a manufacturing plant, a trucking company, a construction company, they've got to start thinking about building their own pipeline and looking at what kinds of people are likely to be very happy and then what kind of support system do they need to put in place so that they have good candidates that are able to fill those positions. That may mean hiring somebody before you actually need them, because you know, in a year, somebody's going to retire and you're going to have a vacancy. That adds some costs, but it also gives you control that you're going to have a quality worker to fill that gap when that person moves on. So that's the pipeline.
1: Yeah. So, and then I would think that, you know, you've mentioned attitude and So even if it's going to cost you a little bit initially, I mean, in the long run, right, you keep the loyalty and you keep that side of things, but then you have a mentor of somebody too that might be retiring and they can talk to that new person coming in and train them on this. I mean, this is all, you know, perfect picture stuff. So I see it, I can envision it, you know, and making sure that inclusion is happening and embracing diversity that happens to be out there and, you know workplace biases and things like that. So that's spot on. I love that. I love that pipeline. I know when I was reading about it I was like that's
0: awesome. Well, and I think we also need to be creative. Knowing that there's an absolute shortage of human talent, you know, for example, we have a lot of people who are struggling in the workforce because they're caregivers. They're taking care of parents or children. Childcare is very expensive, elder care is very expensive. So Can you provide work for somebody who's a caregiver by giving them greater flexibility? That ability to get off a bit early or to work from home. Huge pool of people in that caregiver world. The same with persons with disability. Maybe they've been incarcerated. They have that felony. They have that at-risk potential. But if I can provide a support system, I can bring them into the workforce and really create an opportunity for them to improve their life and to also provide valuable services to my business or my, my nonprofit. So, part of it is we need to be willing to tap into these underutilized human talent pools. But it means that as an employer, you're gonna to have to make some accommodations, you're gonna to have to provide some support service, uh, services. But right now, if we could simply fully utilize the human talent that our caregivers, and that are persons who are marginalized because of substance abuse, criminal records, et cetera. Sure.
1: Second chances are, it's a thing for a reason,
0: right? Yeah. We could largely fill our workforce gap if we were creative and tap those pools, for example. So that's part of the, the solution as well. That's awesome.
1: I have no idea how many people end up going and doing the research on these things, but they are always fascinating to read. So I appreciate you sharing this with us and you know anybody that listens. And like I told you earlier, and like I keep sharing out the website for the podcast and everything. So I want to thank you so, so much for being my guest today. And why don't you share with our listeners how they can learn more about workforce and e-communities?
0: Well, of course. Thanks, Shelley. Our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org, there you can access a whole set of resources, including our podcasts, our newsletter, our practitioners network, but also our papers and our free resources. Specific to this podcast, we're going to release a paper that provides background on Rural America's Workforce Challenge, but also some solutions that we talked about today. And so Anne will be making that available. And of course, I do encourage folks to go to our case study and to look at the stories about Nancy Globke and the healthcare system, the hackles and their construction company about how becoming better employers can help you solve this problem. So those resources will be available as well.
1: Well perfect. So Don, it has been great to have you as my guest today even though this is your show. <laughs> but I love being able to participate. So all of our best to you. Your efforts are our listeners efforts to grow a stronger rural community one community at a time. And thank you and take care.
0: Yeah, bye Shelley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org, where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.